Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thank you very much for coming, everyone. My name's Tom, and today we're going to talk on the panel about accelerating Indigenous entrepreneurship, First Nations leadership for social impact. Thank you very much for coming. We've got a fantastic panel here today, which we'll introduce in a sec. So I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and uh, pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and recognise that these lands have always been lands of learning and teaching and, and sharing for thousands of years. And it's an absolute pleasure to be able to, to talk about Indigenous business today with a, a bunch of fantastic Indigenous uh, business leaders. So thank you so much uh, for coming along. I might start down the far end with the introduction. We've got Troy Casey. And Troy is the co-founder of Blacklash Projects, which is a creative agency specialising in the curation of events, exhibition and bespoke creative projects that showcase Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices and perspectives. Troy has extensive community engagement experience spanning the government, not-for-profit and higher education sectors and is passionate about harnessing economic development opportunities to create positive social change for First Nations Australians. Troy was the first Aboriginal man to be accepted into the MIT Global Entrepreneurship Bootcamp, receiving a scholarship to attend in 2017. He was the co-founder of the Indigenous Startup Weekend Initiative and currently sits on the CSIRO Indigenous Innovation Alliance as a steering committee member. So Troy, welcome. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Next to Troy, we have Lisa Wadigo. And Lisa is the Managing Director of Iscariot Media, an Indigenous-owned Brisbane-based agency that focuses on creative and digital solutions for small business. Delivering training to Indigenous businesses across Queensland, Lisa's played a significant role in Indigenous business sector development for almost a decade. Lisa's the President of the South East Queensland Indigenous Chamber of Commerce, She's on the Working Group for Indigenous Business Queensland. She's the member of the Queensland Government's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Business and Innovation Reference Group. And is the Queensland Government's Indigenous Champion on the Procurement Industry Advisory Group. She's one of the founders of Black Coffee, a community-based networking initiative running across Australia and the Indigenous Business Month. And Lisa is also a volunteer Deadly Runners coach with Brisbane Deadly Runners. Thank you and welcome Lisa. Next to Lisa, we have Kayleen Langford. Waving the flag at the peak of the startup creative mountain is Kay. She's an entrepreneur, passionate coach, sunshine seeker, and all-round go-getter. Kayleen is committed to drawing together young, motivated individuals and throwing them in the mix with industry experts, funding opportunities, development programs, mentors, inspiring events, and keynote presentations. And Kayleen also runs a podcast too. 
Filling the space between opportunities and out-of-this-world outcomes, Kay supports and champions a new generation of Australian entrepreneurs and business owners who are ready to grab their dreams by the horns and ride them off into the sunset. Kay works with people to help them realise their potential and exceed their own expectations is what drives Kayleen to get up every single morning. So Kayleen, thank you very much for coming today. And finally, we have Terry Waller. Terry is a visionary developing an innovative initiative commended by the Anti-Discrimination Commission and also spoken of by Canberra academics as a model for the world. Terry is the managing director of SevGen Indigenous Corporation, an integrated loving, living, laughing, listening and learning place within a location and relationship-based 3E model. That's enterprise, education and entrepreneurship which is crafted to bring us back to a more fulfilling daily existence in an itty-bitty piece of paradise. And she does as well, playing autonomously in passion and purpose always. Terry also manages Deadly Espresso, which is a social enterprise cafe based on the Sunshine Coast. So Terry, thank you so much for coming. And my name's Tom Allen, I am the founder of Impact Boom and I'm absolutely passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. We also do that with an accelerator program called Elevate Plus with workshops, events and other fun things that brings together a community of, of people who are passionate about using business for good. So thanks to you all for coming today, it's much appreciated. I'd like to thank Brisbane City Council for supporting today, as I'd like to, to thank the Eunice Social Business Centre at Griffith University for providing the venue uh, for today's event. So to kick things off, I might ask Lisa this uh, curly question, which is, Lisa, in the, in the space of Indigenous business, how might Indigenous businesses best collaborate and support the growth of the sector? I think the se sector growth involves I guess a few different things. On the one hand, it involves commitment from above. You need to be resourced to do that. And we've had discussions in the past about how initiatives start, but if there's no support, they kind of fall over. And we've seen a lot of initiatives over the years um, that have done that. Great ideas, a great idea is a great idea, but a great idea isn't necessarily a great business. If you can't sustain it. Um, I think that that's really important. So there has to be some kind of support from the top. But from individuals, I think what we're really looking for is, and we, we had a bit of a chat about this in the break, about finding people that you can collaborate with and work with. I think that that's really important. Recognising, I guess, that we all have a role to play. So for instance, the, the work that I do around growing black coffee, which is about activating um, Indigenous business communities across Australia, um, particularly in regional areas, so that they can then have representation to government saying, hey, these are the services that we need in our area. I mean, that's really about creating uh, an environment where I can't run black coffees myself all around the country. But we have regional coordinators in all of those areas. So for me, in establishing that initiative, not by myself, I have a co-founder, of course, in Townsville, but what we're doing is we're really trying to enrol people into that vision. And so what I've found over the, the last 24 months in, in that respect is about, you know, you have to build the infrastructure for it. 
like I said, good ideas don't necessarily make good business. And a good idea is okay, but if you don't actually have infrastructure and processes and systems, the whole thing's going to fall over. Like it's like you've got to build a skeleton from which to put the body. You know, the body, you want this thing, but you've got to build that framework and that skeleton. So I think that that's really important. Fantastic, Lisa. Would someone like to add, Troy? Um, yeah, oh look, I think it's really important because there's a few government policies and um, initiatives that have kind of, you know, sparked a lot of interest in the Indigenous business sector lately. And I think working collaboratively provides opportunities for smaller businesses to team up to win larger scale contracts and projects. I think if we work collectively with businesses that we know and trust, then we can join forces together to look at doing bigger and larger scale projects, which we wouldn't have the opportunity to do individually, but as a collective, we can then access that kind of, that wealth, those contracts. Can I just add in, and one of the things that over the last six months we've done as the South East Queensland Indigenous Chamber of Commerce is actually create the space for that. So we had a Queensland government put out a, a call for um, creative services businesses to, um, to have a standard offer of agreement with them to, to uh, provide creative services and there's only a couple of businesses in in Queensland that could actually fulfill that but one of the things as the chamber what we did was we actually put out to all of our all of our businesses and all of our members if you're a creative services business let's have a workshop let's talk together we had a workshop everybody talked about what a uh, being a part of an SOA is actually about and how we might actually do that. So I think that, you know, again, having, it's also about having those organisations that can be those aggregators of everybody's interests. And that also came as a result of programming government, Deadly Innovation, that flagged that this opportunity was coming up. So we actually had a week or so more than 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 everybody else before that that offer went public. So I think that it's it's if we're going to grow the sector, we actually really need to have lots of different things happening at the same time. Fantastic, Kayleen or Terry, would you like to add to that and maybe outline some of the key challenges that you think Indigenous businesses face? Yeah, well, I think one of the challenges is numbers. You know. And, and so to do just what our other panellists, Troy and Lisa, just said, was to all work together. As you know, we're uh, 3% of the population. So that would be what I would say mostly is, um, yeah, let's all do it together. Yeah, I think examples of where it's been done before and business is such a powerful way. And I think Troy's story is an example of, um, you know, he's, he's not getting any handouts. He's putting his hand up and saying, I'll do the work and I'll do it well. And he's... You know, he's got a, he set himself up with a business model that says, you know, I, I can, in how he's done the markets, is generating income and giving people, showing people that they can um, make money doing what they love and bringing, being proud of being Indigenous and bringing that, like, as a niche, you know, and um, saying we're, we're an Indigenous service provider that understands and knows and, you know, Luke is in the crowd who has created that in the environmental services place so it should be something that you know you can add as a, a point of difference in your business and if we can get more people out there using that we show examples of leading the way and get more people to stand up and go i'm going to use this as a business opportunity too and to take on the bigger projects you need you know a variety of skills and 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 things to to get that 
going so you can't do it all there's other businesses out there that can that you can um, buy in yourself to fulfill those roles again so again it's uh, knowing what's out there um, if it's not there we bring somebody up to do that and uh, and doing it all together again I think also in collaboration it's knowing your place so not trying to do everything in a project that you don't specialize in and then leveraging partners and other indigenous businesses that you know that's their their niche market you know they're great at doing marketing or they're great at video production you know i could dabble in that space but that's not me and i think identifying where you sit in the market and knowing who else in the market that you can collaborate with does it well is really important too because you still want to deliver great outcomes it's not about <coughs> For us, the collaboration aspect is about delivering a great outcome. It's helping other Indigenous businesses out. But in the end, like I know where I sit in the market and what my business is great at, and I try not to cross lanes into someone else's area. Yeah, and I think that that's also about understanding what you're... So, for instance, if you're going to start a business in a, in a community space, you don't have to do everything, right? So, you might be hiring you know a piece of equipment out like a to in a tourism industry sector for instance and you might be hiring out a kayak and you might have a tour coming in but you don't necessarily have to do the food as well like you you might want to offer food to people but you don't want to also start now being a catering business what you want to do is you want to partner with the catering business so it's about understanding the supply chain understanding what all of those people in that product or in that service actually need and working out what you want to be good at and it's i guess knowing what you want to do and then knowing what you're not going to do are both as just as equally as important fantastic in some of the conversations today one of the parts that came up was persistence and that ability just to, to get out there and do and do again and fail and learn, someone described as learning. Were there any other really key fundamental traits that you believe Indigenous business leaders, entrepreneurs really require if they want to make a, a success of what they're doing? Yeah, I think um, definitely being willing to completely mess it up <laughs> and not know what you're doing. I think asking for help is absolutely mentorship, coach, colleagues, peers whatever it is go find someone who's done gone before you and ask them how they did it um, but I think uh, being willing to pivot in a business as well so you might start out a certain way like with startup creative I started out with running a six-week course and I delivered that to council so my day-to-day -day business was pitching to um, whoever was in charge of the funding body to educate young people you know whatever who ha was ever in charge was that bucket so my my day would be you know um find out who that person was do my research figure out the document that i needed to read through to see what their deliverables were weigh up how i was going to pitch to those deliverables get a meeting do a follow-up email send an invoice get a deposit set dates you know like and then do it all again and when i pivoted my business was when i realized that I actually want to go straight to the people with the ideas. I don't want to have to convince a third party that what I have to offer for creative entrepreneurs is of value because I know it's of value. Just put me in front of them and, I, and I'll get results. So um, that's when I changed my business model and it was a, a big call because I went from getting a juicy $10,000 paycheck to you know a couple of hundred dollars paycheck. So I had to you know change how that was going to work, which meant putting effort into building up our community so we had larger reach. and. You were, you know, rather having six meetings in six months, you were 
you were trying to access or build a community of you know sixty thousand um, to get the conversions for you know your your income. So you know, and that came from you know staying true to what I was really passionate about, and I think that's really important. If if you run a business from a place of passion and desire, and this is who I am, and it's ingrained in me, and I love this, and I'm good at it, then it's a superpower, you know. And there's so much that you will achieve and do, and you'll get up to work towards every single day because you're coming from somewhere deep in the heart and I think that's really what indigenous people have very um, strongly is connection to spirit and self and land and intuition and if you can harness that and use that (laughs) then you will yeah do wonders and that that's really um, understanding your purpose and your why is fundamental but I think also understanding how much stuff costs and knowing how to do the books and if you've got a family and you've got kids and you've got rent and you've got mortgage having something that you can actually while you're building the business have a have a source of income that doesn't take your doesn't kind of take your head away from the business but you can do and bring an income in so I was you know there's a few years ago, like I've been in business way before there was an Indigenous procurement policy, um, you know, back in the 1990s. And, you you know, I would do tutoring during the semester, saving up enough money so that I could do the business in, the, in some semesters and, and do the business in other semesters. Um, I often played with the idea of being a bus driver, Brisbane City Council bus driver. I reckon I could do that. And on weekends, kids be home, I could do bus driving, I could earn a bit of money over time, do long shifts. I don't know if it'd be very good. My driving record's not that great. So it's probably, (laughs) the city's probably grateful I never pursued that and I'm grateful that I actually was okay. But, you know, do stuff like that. Work security guards at night. Pack shelves. Like, what are those things that are practically going to support you while you're trying to grow your business? And we've seen a lot of people come out too early leave their jobs too early before they were ready? Have you made the kind of adjustments you need to make in your lifestyle to make sure that you can wear the, the peaks and troughs of being in business? No, In my business, no one pays between December and January and February. So there is no income. So how do you live those three months without any income? What do you do? Okay, so you've, you've got to, so it's it's kind of being practical, knowing your purpose and your passion, not being moved from that, but also actually being a little bit practical and going, okay, so if I don't get any income, if I don't have any customers, where how am I going to live? And I was going to comment on the on the wellness side of business too, because um you know the attribute was persistence. Um, Lisa talked about your, your why why you're doing it. Um, you wake up every morning. You've got your three legs that your business stands up on. The finances know how much things cost. Um, your product and all, you know, your marketing. Without marketing, you won't get very far. It's a, a lot that comes along and and, um, and quite often you think, you know, in the beginning you're up till midnight and then you're up again at five o'clock because, you know, you get woken up by a thought and then you can't go back to bed because your head starts reeling. And, and I quickly learnt, um, you know, people would say to me, oh, you're doing the workload of... 10 people you know you're going you're going to collapse my passion drove me for a long time but also I quickly realized I I started this mantra stay relaxed stay resourceful so I think um, you've also got to be thinking about staying well uh, while you're starting up a business as well Um, I've got a little diary idea if anybody would like to help me get it up (laughs) it's got a little wellness column on the right hand side so yeah that that's what I kind of wanted to add also 
Um, just one thing's being able to take advice. <coughs> I just had a cough. I wasn't like, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I think being able to take advice is super important because, you know, Lisa's touched on it. A good idea is a good idea, but is it a good business? So if someone, you know, you're stuck on this, this is my idea, this is the business, and eight out of ten people say it's a great idea, but I don't know how you're going to be able to monetize that idea into a, a sustainable business model, then you need to listen to people as well. So having good mentors, but also being able to take advice from people. Because sometimes we're very pig-headed and get stuck in that, my idea is the best idea, there's no other way to go. But, you know, there's obviously a whole range of stuff that you do talking to customers and but anyways, I think just being able to take, you know, strong, good advice. Thanks, Troy. So what role does government play in supporting Indigenous business? <laughs> uh, so the, I guess the role that government can play in support... So there's a lot of people who will do business who never have anything to do with government. So until a few years ago, I had pretty much nothing to do with government. I had a small little business... I, they were occasionally my clients, but essentially I'd just pot around and, and, I, and I had a business. I didn't, I didn't need it. it didn't, I didn't worry about it. I wasn't interested in government policies. I never really – I didn't have to worry about it. But over time, and I guess as I've taken on the role of the chamber and trying to help other businesses, I can begin to understand the role that government can play, and particularly in that policy-making role. One of the things I often say to the people that are in our workshops, there are no grants for starting your business. There's a couple of communities that might be different for, but more or less, there are no grants. There's no $10,000 grant to start your business. There, you, there may have been in previous decades, um, but there are certainly none anymore. You have to finance it yourself. How are you going to do that? So really understanding that sort of stuff and understanding what government can't do. It's not going to give you money to start. You know, what it can do is, and we talked about this earlier in the discussion, in particular, there are some policies that impact on our ability to run businesses in certain communities. For instance, housing policy. Um, are, there, are there spaces for your, if you're in a community is there, and you want to sell stuff, is there a space for you to actually sell it? Does the council's local, council, local Aboriginal council have policies that allow you to set up a stall, a roadside stall or whatever? Is there internet? The government could provide internet for our communities across Australia. Our communities don't all have running water. They don't all have electricity. They're the kinds of things that governments can do to make sure that we can have a business ecosystem, an Indigenous business ecosystem. So they're not going to give you money, they're not going to give you $10,000, but they might give you internet that will enable you, enable you to Google stuff and learn and build customers and build customers or, or build markets and, and an audience from across the world. So yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to really be a little bit realistic about what governments can and can't do. So thinking about those policy things thinking about the infrastructure stuff is really really important and of course I guess my business um, is we do are delivering so much more training these days so yay training programs <laughs> uh, plug for training programs because that's what we do I'm speak every single day with um, business owners about I've got this idea how do I do this so our particular area now in terms of training is micro business so I'm interested in the folks who are starting you know maybe need $300 to start one thing I'm interested in micro business space 
and we're interested in the digital space. So we're doing a lot on digital security, how to set up your infrastructure and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think that, you know, governments being able to provide that kind of training, and they do that for all businesses. They don't just do it for Indigenous businesses. So small business is one of the biggest employers of Australians. So we need to make sure that we have a piece of that as well. Mm. Well, I, d I don't know. Um, from a social enterprise stance, for me, for government, um, I think they can actually uh, validate what we do because um, I have this little picture in my mind of the, you know, the tri thing, government, corporate and charity. So and then there's a, in the middle is the little philanthropy circle as well. So I think, I think what government can do is um, get out there, really know what's out there. So it's, the job they should be doing is listening and knowing and then, and, and then finding ways to validate and showcase what it is we're doing. That would be good. I think with social enterprise, I, and when I was working in this space a few years back, I don't know whether it's evolved, Tom might know, um, but being able to put a f dollar figure on the impact that you're having, um, and I think that through that validate, like whether they're researching how to, how much are we saving through giving back and having Im impact through people, you know, accessing services or whatever. So I think that would be a really vital thing. Do you know, Tom, if that's happening? Certainly from an impact measurement perspective, yeah. that's a really important piece that I, I believe all good and effective social enterprises should be doing. So very clearly understanding what impact it is that you are making, how do you measure that, and how do you tell a narrative and a story through that? How do you communicate that to all your different stakeholders, whether it be an employee, uh, whether it be uh, a government buyer or someone else that you're providing a service to? It might even be to philanthropy uh, or an investor. So I think that's a, certainly a very important piece. I just had a thought what um, Troy said before, and, and know and know what they do and leave the rest alone <laughs> as well and partner. So partner with us rather than to start another government initiative that really takes the place of something that's already happening out there. Yeah, the impact outcome's an interesting one because we work in the creative industries. So public artwork, how do you actually measure what kind of return on investment that is? Or a cultural festival that we run in the middle of the city that brings community Indigenous and non-Indigenous together to share stories. You know, there's a monetization of the stallholders, how much they sell, but what's the social impact for people that participate in those kind of initiatives? Government can also, I think, start to understand that we have capacity to deliver now and not have a deficit approach towards the way in which they engage in Indigenous businesses. There's kind of a negative connotation around you know, Indigenous businesses need to have a joint venture to be able to deliver on these large-scale projects. But I think, um, you know, everyone gets a crack at the start. Indigenous, well, non-Indigenous businesses, how did they get to that point? So, you know, I think, you know, that's definitely a thing. We still have to prove ourselves, you know. Um, don't get me wrong, any business that gets a contract has to deliver it and deliver it well. And then you get another contract. But being able to get that shot at it in the first instance is sometimes really challenging. But yeah, I, again, you know, the policies and stuff are, are now in place. And I think, you know, we actually need to be smarter on how to access some of those contracts as well. We talk about collaboration and coming together to get those larger scale projects that can be delivered. So, you know, it's not just about what the government can do for us. It's not a handout. It's how do we utilise that as a hand up? You know, because, yeah, the deficit approach hasn't worked for our communities for a long time. Absolutely. 
thanks for those insights, guys. I'd love to hear a, a few really interesting examples of First Nations entrepreneurs or Indigenous-led businesses that beyond your organisations that are really creating some fantastic outcomes. Are there any examples? Yeah, good afternoon. My name's uh, Leslie Ulang-Lowe. Um, I'm the Managing Director of Technology Indigenous Corporation. Um, Technology is an anagram which stands for traditional ecological and cultural knowledge. So we look at how we can take our ecological and cultural knowledge bases and turn them into modern businesses. Um, yeah, so I think I might be a little bit biased because I used to work for them. Um, <laughs> but Carbon Creative are an um, advertising creative agency that have kind of shifted from just being an advertising agency and a graphic design company that worked on any and if projects um, and now have a really big focus on creating advertising campaigns that in turn create positive social change, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. But I think they've found a really good niche in the way in which to create campaigns for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you can just create a good campaign that speaks to everyone. It doesn't necessarily have to have dot art and say deadly and you know all all of the all of all of the things that are very specific you know specific to Aboriginal communities. But you can talk about families. You can talk about community more broadly as a collective of people um, that resonates a with us but also with others. And I think they are in a really good space that they can kind of, yeah, communicate those to, to all audiences. And that that's, saves the government money um, yeah. because they don't have to do two campaigns. But yeah, and, and Wayne Dennings, the, the managing director of that company, and he's been kind of kicking goals for, for the last 10 or 15 years. So um, yeah, I, I think they're, they're a really great organisation. There's so many. I can't say there's so many and they're not come out with some. There's businesses like, um, there's really small businesses. Like um, around here we've got um, the Crampton Social who are, uh, um, um, I guess, probably a micro business. They're a cafe in our northern suburbs. We have Toretto's Cafe up at Launton. This is the exciting part is Toretto's is a... Um, Okay, so I'm not their market. I'm going to say that out front. But they do, you know, like Fast and the Furious, the movie? So, you know, Toretto, the character from that. And they're car people, like hardcore car people. So these are got the, so, so it, it's become a meeting place. So it's about coffee and cafe stuff. But it's also about creating a meeting place for people who are hardcore into these cars. So I think... Everybody thinks assumes that indigenous businesses are you know is cultural culturally based and that kind of thing. But there are so many businesses that actually have nothing to do like Aboriginal. they're Aboriginal businesses. So and there's cryogenics group who who do cryogenic stuff across a number of states. So I mean there's a lot of different businesses that are transcending what we imagine indigenous businesses to be. So yeah. I used to do some work for AIM, which is Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience, and they um, work in schools, high schools and universities, and it's about closing the gap between the number of Indigenous young people who are graduating high school and transitioning to university. And um, Jack, a young guy, started that a few years back now, and they use Indigenous... I was a presenter for them, so I would go in and, and run programs um, at the universities, and then university students would come in and, and mentor 
they also what I love about them is they invested a lot that they, they did really well with getting corporate partnerships on board so Virgin Aus- Australia is one of their major partnerships as well as I think bonds help them do hoodies and things like that um, but creating um, opportunities for the kids to creatively express themselves so it was very much about um, doing well at school as well and showing up but as a result they got to they did this thing where um, Ames got game and it was every year I think it was grade nine and ten kids got to submit a video of them you know a lot of the the kids love rapping and singing and or whatever they were good at and they were pre- su- submitted a video and it was a nationwide competition between across all the schools and um, the winners got, they voted on it and then the top five or something got a virgin flight. I think they flew them from Sydney to, to Melbourne or Brisbane or something like that. And then they, but they packed the flight with um, Aboriginal artists and musicians and mentors, you know, and gave them opportunities to, to creatively do that. And he's done so well with it and it's Australia-wide. He's actually, um, he's in New York right now um, and teaching how to set it up for their um, African-American students. Can I just mention another one? There's Young Guns who are based at, oh, where's the shipping containers? Murray. They've got about 400 employees couple of, across a couple of countries. They're in Canada as well. They're two young fellas. Oh, not, they're not young. They're not young anymore. Trent, uh, Trent and Scott. <laughs> young, young Guns, that's why I keep thinking they're young. Uh, Trent and Scott uh, were football players. They went to university and did deg- engineering degrees. But while they were doing their engineering degrees, they'd unpack shipping containers on the weekends and, and then they built a business and now they have, you know, hundreds of employees off-premises in Canada and all around Australia. So, again, transcending. And I, I remember sitting in a, in a workshop with Trent and, you know, we're all from community, so we all kind of, oh, government this, government that, this grant this. You know, you're kind of having that yarn. And he's just sitting there kind of, re- just really quiet, well, they're really quiet anyway. And um, he goes, I don't understand. I don't know any of the minister's names. I don't know any grants. I don't... Because his business was built completely on just no grants, nothing. Had nothing to do with government agencies, no corporates. He just built his business. They just built their business. So, I mean, there's businesses like that as well. There's some great examples there. So, were there any questions from the audience? So, um, a lot of the businesses we're talking from a metropolitan outlook. um, So, that's scaling up. And how do we look at that from a regional perspective where we have, I suppose, in community, most of our major issues of um, high unemployment, youth suicide, uh, closing the gap, you know, as far as our education goes. So how do we take the things that we're doing in the metropolitan and take them to regions and scale up from there? Well, I'd advocate a franchise model. (laughs) And there are franchises out there. We're trying to grow ours into a franchise model. So maybe people out in the regions can... You know, I think there's a bit coming in about that now too. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a big conversation on the table at the moment. So they could look at uh, some kind of franchise. I'd love them to do a deadly espresso franchise out there. <laughs> <laughs> plug plug. I, I think it's really about, and I and I'll admit my experience isn't massively regional. We've done a few things in different regions, but when we've gone in, it's like so okay. So what do we have? What do we have? What is it that makes our community amazing? What assets do we have? And your asset might be a rainforest or your asset might be a waterfall or it might be 
people are speaking language or some amazing dancers or some, like whatever it is, what asset do you have? And it may not seem, sometimes you can't see what you've got as an asset because you've just got it and, oh, no, I'm not very special. This is just what we do. But if we can come in from that place of what do we have, okay, so who might want to come to that place? So there's a New Zealand, I can't remember the name of it, and it was in, um, you know how in New Zealand they have their language? So their their news, is their NITV is actually in language, so I actually couldn't understand it and it didn't have subtitles. But what they had was it was kind of like at home, like a Airbnb, but in Mob's house. So you would go to the, mis- like to go to the community and just stay with families. So it's like Airbnb, but in communities. And so people were, this is a New Zealand project, and it's kind of like you can either try to make the community palatable for the, a specific audience, or you can find the audience that wants to have what you've got. You know, and so when I saw that New Zealand example, it was a case of there are people out there who want to experience life as it is. So it's about understanding that what we have Aspects of what we have are assets. Aspects of what we have are beautiful and wonderful and people want to know us for who we are. So that's probably where I would approach it from is I'm not one of the, I don't do toxic positivity. I don't kind of, I'm not positive kind of thing all the time. I like to be quite realistic. But if we can come from that place of this is deadly and we will deal with the, the stuff that's not so good, we can deal with that stuff. But let's let's value ourselves for what we have. So f- I guess it's finding value in what we've got. Yeah, it's like finding the gap in the marketplace. You know, what's the gap that it can that we can fill? You know, where where is an opportunity to make money here? And my nephew, I was with my family yesterday, and I was he was trying to understand the difference between a one dollar, like ones and tens. He's just started school. He's five, and he was trying to understand how I gave him four dollars, but he already had sixty dollars. And why wasn't it sixty plus forty? So. My dad gave him a $10 note and his eyes lit up and he just wanted to keep the $10 note and the mass went out the window. <laughs> so, and then he, dad, he said, I said, give it back to granddad. And he's like, I want it. And I was like, well, here's what you do. You go over to him and say, what would it take for me to earn this from you? What do you need that I can serve for you? You know, and so it's about finding the opportunities to trade, to do business. And I think that, you know, that I think another thing that we can do for that is to show, especially young people, that it can be done. So, uh, you know, the positivity thing comes from our brains are actually uh, wired that if we see something done and we can see somebody successfully achieve something, then we're more likely to give it a solid crack because we see it's achievable. It's like the four-minute mile. No one could ever run a four-minute mile. The moment one person cracked the four-minute mile, then flooded number of people were running the four-minute mile. So bringing them maybe out of rural situations into, you know, and, and putting them in and amongst successful people who have who've made it and said, this is the path that I did, you can do it. You know, it might not be easy, but have a crack. And then they can take that back and go, all right, I've got some business skills here. I've got some language I can use. You know, where's the gap in the market? So using, you know, their environment. Because the reality is that's business 101, right? You can't go, oh, I want to open a coffee shop. Sweet, I'm going to open my doors. And then go, well, there's already 50 coffee shops on this block, you know, or no one in this town drinks coffee. So, yeah, teaching the business smarts and then applying it to your land. There's another question from the audience. Hi, um, my name is Yudan. I'm um, an Indigenous filmmaker. 
I um, have been an entrepreneur for many years and um, one of the areas that interests me at the moment is around uh, social impact bonds and how that can be integrated, in, well, especially as filmmakers, we do a lot of projects that you know are there for that to give voice to our mob. And so one of the areas that I'm interested in is how, how do you incorporate social impact bonds um, into business? I actually applied for a social benefit bond <laughs> when the three Queensland ones, you know, when they were trying to get three Queensland social benefit bond um, examples. Uh, we got progressed a good deal of the way and then we missed out at the, at the last and the three social benefit bonds were awarded uh, around Queensland. Um, so can you tell me your question again? I just wanted to say that. No, I, I'm, I'm just interested in how do you actually, how does it apply? Like how do you apply it to your business? So for example, for you, um, what made you feel that your business was um, eligible for that and how did you sort of quantify, I guess, the impact, the social impact? Because obviously with those bonds, they're saying we don't want money, but we want to see how that how that translates into the world. Could you explain well, a little bit of that? I guess we'd done it on a prototype kind of version. We'd already been doing some of the work already, um, and so we'd we'd done a little bit of monetizing what we were doing, and so then we just looked at ten times in that, um, and then put a, an application into uh, the the go it was the government, so. Um, and that's what we're working towards. We're working towards one of our customers that we say is our income stream is government and for them to develop up a very tiny little social benefit bond so that we can make some money that way. So I think it's very appropriate for well, for social enterprises anyway and I think we could, yeah, I'd love to talk to you a bit more about that so that we could um, put our heads together and if you've got an idea too and uh, and try and put together another um, another uh, approach there. So in a nutshell, does the question come back to receiving investment for the work that you're doing, but based on a social benefit, a social outcome? Uh, I guess in a way, it's, it's about how do you create um, film projects, taking them out of the hands of the producers, putting them into the hands of the community, and the community actually being able to make money out of that because you know a lot of the time we have a lot of uh, non-indigenous documentary companies going in and the communities don't get anything out of it and even as indigenous filmmakers we you know we don't get a lot out of it but if there could be some way that the the communities benefit that's kind of what I'm interested in certainly from that social enterprise perspective in setting yourself up as a as an indigenous led social enterprise that is a filmmaker uh, the social enterprise model, I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate around the definition of social enterprise, but the one that's most widely accepted, I would say, in Australia is based on the Phases Report, which was written by Professor Joe Barricat. That's Finding Australia's Social Enterprise Sector Report. Originally written in 2010, but the key elements really that define social enterprise for them is that the business is led by a mission that is consistent with uh, a positive social or environmental benefit, that the social enterprise is trading, so the majority of revenue comes from trade, that's doing business, not waiting for grants or for government funds. And thirdly, that the majority of profit 
so that's, let's say 51%, gets returned into fulfilling the mission of that business, that is to deliver a social environmental outcome. So in, in building a business that does that, you could then be classified as being a social enterprise in the eyes of some. Not that that opens up any opportunities for you. Primarily, I think it's around how do you deliver an, an amazing product or service that is just as good as anyone else in the market, but at the same time, you're able to measure and deliver impact in the community and tell a story through that as well and benefit uh, many people through that model. There's another question from Jason. I was just um, trying to help with that. How, where's, where's the community value in when you're making a film or something like that? So the way we're looking at it um, for our community is that the ownership of the information that you're giving out belongs to the community. So the community makes the decisions on what they're going to release. And then that way, if there is something that can become a business um, proposition for them, they, they've already decided on the way it's going to be shared publicly and, and what's going to be shared publicly. So then it's easier for them. Those business decisions become down come down to who's, who's the marketing person that's going to deal with it and the way you can swap that between different propositions for the community. So whether, whether or not the jobs will uh, be serviced from outside of the community or there's, you know, and it's also building, while you're using services outside, you're also building uh, infrastructure within the community because the community is seeing the value in those, those services you can pull from outside at the moment until you become established you know so but the key is making sure that you know like as a creative you know that information that you're sharing it's got to be the community's ownership you've you've got to be totally upfront and honest and and it can't be just butchered everywhere and without them having a say the problem is not so much um indigenous film companies because we kind of have that understanding of you know the cultural protocols I guess it's just around, um, I think in my mind's eye, it's, it's about how do we make the community also a business, an active business partner in filmmaking. So you can say, yes, we want this here or that there, but actually at the moment with the whole changes in the film industry, everything is going out on SBOD. There are... There are companies that go, well, we'll make this, we'll take a part ownership, and then it all gets put out as a global format. And then you don't realise that you've signed it, you signed it away because they're very tricky. And I'm just saying it would be great to empower communities to actually be an active business partner. So last year there was a thing about research um, over at Griffith, a talk, and... Um, so these, a lot of the researchers were going into the communities and doing their research and leaving, all right? And so they weren't empowering the community to actually do their own research and then give those statistics back to the government. government. So the, as a filmmaker, you should be, you're, you're training up that generation or the next generations of filmmakers in for that community. You know, each, mm, exactly. each community, there's going to be a creative in there that exactly. will... It'll be like, oh yes. wow, this is what I want to do, yes, you know. Yes, and yes. as soon as the passion steps up, <laughs> it's going to be easier for you to grab and go. Yep. So yep. we're all older, and we we can see those things mm. within the younger group. So we should definitely be um, nurturing those situations. Mm. And this is a perfect example. You're nurturing myself too. So 
Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, it's a fantastic point, Jason. And certainly from the design perspective over the years, we've seen a lot more uh, work and interest now in co-design or co-production, whereas it's no longer designing for, but it's designing with and recognising that the power comes from the community, that the power comes from the room, that we're all experts in our own right, we all have our own uh, backgrounds that we can contribute to and I think that's certainly a really, really uh, powerful way to be starting business as well is in the, in the co-production of that. Yeah. I'll just add from some really practical point of views, I think um, Jason makes a good point, is in business start out with what your intention is. What are you out to create? What are you out to do? And take ownership of that and get really clear on your boundaries of exactly who are, what are you doing and what aren't you doing. And that means that when you're providing a, a business or a service and, you know, Troy was saying this before as well, is you're really clear about we do this and we don't do that. So we're going to produce this but we're also going to have the rights around where this is going. And then where businesses have great success is they know their worth. So you know what you have to offer. So if you are taking that to get government funding or bonds or whatever, what's in it for them? And you're, you're in a pitching position. So your job is to go to the person that you want to pitch to or who your target market is and say, what do they need? What are their needs? Okay. Their needs are to have more powerful representations of Aboriginal people in drama series. You know, let's more drama series that really showcase, you know, this or whatever. Um, you know, and that, if there's more of that, then more young people are going to have role models and then they're going to have something to aspire to. So therefore, they're going to stay engaged in schooling and that's going to save them money in, in detention. And, and, and then you can go and figure out how much it costs to put a young person through in detention and go, well, for every kid that we get um, idolising this young guy in this TV series, you're saving, you know, have the potential to save on detention fees. So it's like um, that's where you can really understand your return on investment and then you go into meetings and have really powerful conversations that say this is not just a TV series. This is a TV series that's going to change the next generation and it's going to have serious impact and this is how we're going to do it. You know, and I think that's I'm so passionate about the creative industries doing that because, you know, especially young people, they don't want to hear it from the head, you know, but they, if you can spark it in their hearts and and going into those empowered conversations with a business mindset. Speaking of which, we've got we've got great series like that have been produced in the last five years, like Clever Man, that have gone viral overseas. When's Australia going to have its apocalypto, its brave heart, its true representation of our first people, our first nations, and post-colonisation and the effect on our people, told from a I suppose our truth perspective from our standpoint. I think that's a fantastic point to end on. So I'd like to thank the audience today uh, for coming along and for asking your questions and participating in the, in the conversation. And I'd most certainly like to, to thank Troy, Lisa, Kayleen and Terry for coming along today, for sharing your insights, your experience. It's very much appreciated. And we look forward to continuing the conversation into the future as well and seeing uh, what other means we, we, can, we can put out there to, to keep this conversation going and, and building a community. So thanks very much, everyone. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.